Welcome to the 7 and 7 show where your host, Zach Ellison, extracts valuable insights from top investment experts. Seven key questions in just seven minutes. Stay on top of market trends, expand your investment knowledge, and get tips from the best in the business. Brought to you by Applied Real Intelligence, ARI, the leader in venture debt financing. www.arivc.com. Let's grow! Hi, everybody. Welcome to season two of the 7 and 7 show with Zach Ellison. This season, we're focused on investing in innovation. And we've got one of the best investors out there today in Mike Ryan. And Mike is the founder of Bullet Point Network, known as BPN. And he's done many, many things in his career that are noteworthy. So, Mike, I want to turn it over to you to talk about A, how you got here, and B, what is BPN? Sure. Thanks, Zach. Great to be with you again. Um, Quick background on me, uh, grew up in Staten Island, went to Yale, and then went to Wall Street, went directly to Goldman Sachs, spent about uh, two decades there, um, was a partner at the time of the Goldman Sachs IPO, and for about eight years afterward, eventually became the global head, uh, co-head of equities. Um, well, I left Wall Street, uh, started my own family office, and then maybe five years or so into that, uh, Harvard University asked me to manage some money for the school's endowment ended up managing about $6 billion of direct investment, plus another $12 billion that we allocated as an LP, as a co-investor in other people's funds. Uh, and then I left uh, Harvard and started Bullet Point Network, or BPN. Um, it's a software platform and an analyst team that we make available to venture capitalists, uh, growth equity investors, credit investors, and, and some buyout funds. Um, and sometimes to the companies, the portfolio companies, of those funds. And so that's what Bullet Point Network is and that's my background. I've I've tried uh, I've tried out BPN and your platform. I think it's awesome. And so I definitely want to talk today about if what goes into that in terms of the scenario analysis and a big part of that will be what you're doing with artificial intelligence and that's obviously sure. a theme in today's market. But before we dig into the specifics of BPN and AI, let's start with the bigger picture in terms of what are you seeing in terms of themes when it comes to investing in innovation, specifically in the US and maybe in the venture ecosystem? Sure. Well, I think a real current reality is a theme, and that is companies are essentially looking to raise capital. They usually are, and they are once again. I think there was a period of time where there was so much change, so much reduction in valuation, uh, so much limitation on capital availability. And frankly, there had been a period preceding that where there was so much abundance of capital that I think uh, companies were a little bit in disbelief for a while and 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 maybe were hoping that uh, things would rebound. Uh, I don't think they're hoping for that rebound anymore. I, I think the number one theme is pragmatism uh, and they're back to raising money. They're accepting the terms that it takes to raise capital uh, in equity or traditional preferred rounds, uh, as well as in debt uh, in your neck of the woods and, and elsewhere. Uh, th- that's the number one theme is um, maybe it's uh, you know back to work, uh, back to raising the money uh, because you, you can't really be a growth company uh, that's not growing. And so you're going to have to invest. So that's theme number one. The- theme number two is um, related to that, but there's no longer a free pass. You, you can't just have a great idea, a powerful credentialed founder, uh, and you know just raise money. 
Um, you're going to have to have a much more disciplined, well-communicated, well-thought-out business plan. Um, and some of these very innovative things that I know you want to talk about today and in this whole podcast series, um, some of them do require quite a bit of capital uh, because you're, you're inventing something. You, you might be building uh, factories, creating new technologies, pursuing patents. Think about some of the most innovative things in the world. Um, many times they require a lot of capital and a long time frame to develop them and bring them to fruition. Not always, but many times. And so that is an interesting uh, intersection where you have companies wanting to raise capital, needing to raise capital to pursue the very innovation that we're talking about here, and investors uh, being more disciplined, um, requiring uh, more from the business plan and maybe being a little less willing to just invest in the vision um, with perhaps the exception of AI, which we'll come back to, which does appear to have bubble-like characteristics in the funding markets now. But in most other areas, whether it's different flavors of EVs, um, the components of, of, of them, traditional biotech, which is one of the most innovative things in the world, med tech, biotech, a um, lot of long cycle, a lot of regulatory risk, a uh, lot of scientific risk. Uh, but even in defense tech uh, or consumer tech or fintech, um, when you have uh, long cycle times and real R&D budgets and real factory and capacity building that you need to do, you need a lot of capital. And that's the, the second theme is you got to communicate your plan with enough specificity and credibility that they will give you the capital. And so, you know, I've touched there in, in passing on a handful of industries those just came to me off the top of my head because those are industries that we've worked on in the last, say, three months uh, with different VC partners. Well, Mike, when you're thinking about investing in, in industries or in companies in particular, what are you looking for? What are the factors that kind of signal that an investment could be good and and more um, more substance than hype? Yeah, great question. Um, well. We start and finish with the fundamentals, the old-fashioned fundamentals, which are um, how good is the team? Is the founder and the management team really proven, really outstanding, uh, really strong? Uh, we also focus on the TAM or the market. Uh, is the market there for the taking? And I think a lot of people get confused about just thinking broadly in terms of a giant single TAM. We try to subdivide it into truly accessible TAM number one, uh, and then how you may expand into a second, third, and fourth act over time. And then you get to what I think is perhaps the most important third point, even more important than, than team and TAM, which is differentiation. Do you have a real winning edge? Do you have a competitive advantage, a moat that will form around your product or service? Are you literally definitively better than the alternatives? And What's the proof for that? Um, you know, do you have traction? Uh, do you have uh, customers? Are you actually producing uh, revenues? Uh, do you have science? Uh, do you have patents that are issued? Uh, do you have defensible moats that will surround your business so that effectively your cash flows are going to be uh, growing and, and protected? And that's kind of where I'll come back to the beginning and say, for us, it's really about profitability. It's really about growth and profitability. Um, we try to separate hype from reality. We, we try to quantify the story in a way that translates the story into numbers. How many units will they sell? 
What margins will they get? Um, how sustainable and defensible is that sales plan? And then how scalable is it? How, how efficiently can they grow their operations and produce bigger profits? And so it probably sounds pretty similar to old-fashioned investing in non-innovation sectors. And I think that's intentional. You really shouldn't be completely wowed uh, by the, the people and the vision. Uh, they are ultimately essential. If you don't have a great founder, and if he or she doesn't have the right vision, um, you're not going to end up with a successful company in an innovative play. So that couldn't be more important. But it can't stop there. And that's the difference, I think, that that we're trying to uh, to take at, at Bullet Point Network. We're trying to translate that vision, uh, that excitement, that what you call hype, into cash flows. And those cash flows may happen over time. And we can use simple, well-proven things like a discounted cash flow model. Or we can think about what multiple to put on revenues that will capture the long-term, you know, decade plus of growth and profitability that you're paying for today. But we do think you're supposed to do that second step. Don't just listen to the story, quantify the cash flows and think about whether what you're paying for them makes sense. And we've talked previously about the importance of integrity as well. So, it, you know, as you've said um, previously, it, really it all starts with the integrity of the founders and the management team. And then it would flow into everything that you just said. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the integrity of the team and the people, of course, people come first. Though the governance or you know the corporate integrity of the business is another important factor. You want to make sure you don't have complex related party issues or bad governance, or you want there to be some integrity around the business. But fundamentally, you do need to have that personal integrity. Uh, great people driving great businesses is what you want to invest in. Um, I'm just curious, like, is there a way to, to quantify integrity and the probability that the founders are going to do what they say they're going to do? Yeah, well, that's a good question. There's a couple things in there. Um, one is just straight up integrity and, and honesty and, and uh, delivering what they say they're going to do. Uh, the other is execution capability. Will they actually have uh, the, the skill and the uh, ability to first and foremost recruit talented people to their team? Uh, and then to lead and organize or manage uh, the work streams to, to deliver the kind of execution results. They're both really important. They are actually for us two different things. Um, e even though we're enormous fans of quantifying everything and quantifying stories, there is no way to quantify uh, integrity. Um, but I do believe that someone's integrity, as well as someone's execution track record, the second thing, um, it leaves a footprint. That's what I often say. I say someone's life's work leaves a footprint behind them. Uh, and it, and the footprint is either a footprint of high integrity or uh, strong execution uh, results and success uh, or otherwise. And it's a little bit, honestly, Zach, like uh, the Supreme Court definition of pornography. Uh, you'll know it when you see it. Uh, when you see a footprint, when you see a track record of someone who's been operating with high integrity or someone who's been operating with great execution results, it's very clear because people that they've worked with or competed against or collaborated with speak in a certain way about them. Um, people that have worked with them want to rejoin them and are working with them in their second or third uh, venture. Um, customers and others in their supply chain or their ecosystem um, speak very clearly of them. And so when you're doing your 
primary research about customers, suppliers, competitors, uh, you're actually doing some serious and important work on um, the integrity and the execution capability of that team. I like the way you termed it footprint because the word track record, I think gets overused and misinterpreted, especially in the investment world where people say, well, what's your track record? And they're oftentimes referring to affordable numbers in terms of performance results. But to me, when you're investing in innovation, you're not going to have that kind of track record in many cases. I always say innovation doesn't come with a track record, right? Like that's why it's innovative. And by definition, if it's new, it can't have a track record. And and what you just described makes a lot of sense because what you can look at as an investor is the footprint. It doesn't need to be numbers that they generated at a firm. It can be their entire you know, history of development. Yeah. I, I tend to overweight folks that have come from humble beginnings and that have had to overcome obstacles because when you ask them, you know, what's the hardest thing you ever did? It wasn't like, you know, landing a deal or getting a job or or anything like that. It was, hey, I, I had to fight to survive. And to me, if you can do that, the other stuff is easy. And especially when you're investing in early stage companies, there aren't the numbers there to you know, demonstrate if this person's you know, been a winner necessarily, but there's still evidence. It's just not hard numbers. And I think that's where a lot of folks go wrong. And it's also why a lot of emerging funds, I think, have trouble raising capital because institutional investors, as as you know very well, you want to see a longer term track record of numbers, but they often will look beyond that to say, okay, what's this person's or this team's footprint of success? Yeah, I agree. And you know, uh, the word footprint is an, is an intentional choice. And I think if you if you do your homework on someone. You'll see they may have, you know, run a business unit, or they may have run a whole division of a large company. Uh, they may have started a prior company, a startup that failed. Uh, they may have participated in a startup where they were employee number ten that succeeded, and now this is their opportunity with you to be leading their own uh, business here as as this you know fifth uh, thing that they've done in their in their life. There will be footprints in each of the prior four things that speak to their integrity, their creativity, their execution capabilities. And if you don't find out some of the bad things about what happened in those four prior uh, at-bats, you probably haven't done your homework. Uh, and you should, in, in seeking to find out some of those bad things, uh, you will undoubtedly see a clear footprint of someone that's got high integrity, someone that's a great execution leader, and, and, and also uh, someone that can just attract and retain uh, talented people around them. I tend to look for signals because sometimes there's there's not enough you know, hard evidence. But you know, I like veterans. I like athletes. I like non traditional founders, and I like anybody who's overcome big challenges. And I start with that because those folks are usually incredibly persistent. They're hardworking. Um, they're resilient, right? And uh, and I think resilience and persistence. And uh, coachability is another thing. The ability to um, take feedback and apply it, I think, applies to, to those groups of people. So it's 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 interesting for me because I think there's a huge edge that can be gained as an investor by somehow quantifying or measuring the likelihood of a person or a team being good at what they do, even if you never see any numbers. And yeah, I, when I started ARI couple of years ago, one of the 
first things I was thinking about was how do we quantify person's you know, personality and how does that, you know, how do those factors relate to the probability of success? And, you know, I haven't built that machine yet. I mean, we're pretty far along with, with some aspects of it, but it really goes back to the factors that I just mentioned. You know, how do you screen for integrity, persistence, work ethic, humility, coachability? And you know, that to me is going to be the next, one of the next uh, layers of investing that we haven't really reached yet. It's like the next frontier. Like we've, we've gotten to the point now with the numbers that anybody can crunch them, right? And there's like machines that are much more powerful than you or I combined, but the machines still don't know how to measure the intangibles. And that's ultimately what, what I think will be a big differentiator in choosing. Yeah, no, I, I like your, I like your scorecard and I like your approach. And those, those people that with the characteristics that you summarized as being kind of important, uh, signals for you, uh, are generally people that it, it sounds like I'd love to spend time with. They seem like good people that I'd like to be, be with, uh, you know, working in the proverbial foxhole uh, or collaborating on a on a project with for all those reasons. There, there is one thing that I'll offer you and and your your viewers to to consider um, that I've learned sort of somewhat the the hard way, I'd say. And I'll I'll use a quick analogy and a quick story. But um, when I was working in Japan and I was hiring people, um, I ended up looking back on my record of of hiring people. And one thing that became clear is I was generally hiring people that spoke very good English. Um, and while that's not a bad thing, that is far from the most important thing when you're doing business in Japan. Um, and so I had to sort of course correct and say, I'm hiring people because they make me feel good when I'm meeting with them. But I need to really get to a layer deeper and figure out what are the key success factors that they need to have in their jobs to be great in Japan. And back to the question of all those great characteristics that you summarized and that I love, and I love to be with people that, that share them. Uh, there is something about innovators and innovators often are not the nicest people. They're not always the most collaborative. Oftentimes uh, their minds are uh, very closed and they are disruptors in their space in part because they're looking at unobvious things or they're seeing things that are other than obvious to you know many of uh, us uh, around the, the system and it's actually that level or that sort of razor's edge of they're solving unobvious uh, problems uh, they're doing it with high confidence they're not always taking feedback because a lot of times the feedback that they're getting is about the status quo and is fully conditioned on a lifetime of living within the status quo, and they're actually going to change something with a disruptive solution to maybe an unobvious problem. And so you sometimes, I've, I learned, like I couldn't hire all the good English speakers in Japan. I sometimes don't want to always hire uh, or partner or fund the people that are completely uh, collaborative and, and easy uh, to work with and, and coachable. Sometimes you want to hire people that are brilliant, disruptive, and right. That third part's very important because if they're brilliant, disruptive, and other than right, it's just they're just problems. Uh, but that's what you got to think through. Yeah, I think you nailed it with this idea of independent thinking uh, or contrarian thinking in many respects. Yeah, if yeah, if you want to do better than average, you can't think like the average, right? Yeah. And sometimes that's going to you know, put you at great risk because if you're wrong, 
and you're going against the crowd, that's when you you know, put your career at risk in, in terms of you know, at, at a bigger firm typically, right? But to be great as a founder, you have to be an independent thinker. And I think you almost have to be by definition what the academics would term overconfident. So I don't mean it in the sense of being um, you know, cocky. I mean, somebody who looks at the numbers and says, well, if I just went by the numbers, I would never launch this startup because the probability of success is very low. And I'd probably be better served just going and clipping like a nice coupon for the next 40 years at a you know, tier one mature firm. So you have to be nuts because you have to say, I'm going to be the one that's the outlier and I'm yeah. going to go solve a problem that no one else has yet solved or hasn't solved as effectively as I think I can. And so you're right. I should have put that at the top of my list, actually. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it's critical, I think, to have at least the, the, the person that's leading the firm or somebody that's in that you know, top you know, C-suite, so to speak. You have to have somebody that's thinking like that because if you're just thinking like everybody else, you're, you're going to get you know, results like everybody else. Yeah, I agree. And so I just I added that one particular thing to your excellent list because I think in the innovation sphere, it's really, really critical. The other thing that I think uh, I keep emphasizing is the ability to re recruit and retain and motivate good teams because not everyone on the team should have or will have the same strengths or disposition. Um, and if everybody on the team is an independent disruptor, you, you may not end up with much success either. Uh, you do need uh, some people that are great at uh, process, some people that are great at relationships, uh, some people uh, th that are great at creativity, some people that are great at you know, you know just diligent execution. Um, you need sort of a portfolio, a diverse portfolio of people with skills and getting them to buy into the same goal and objective and then deliver it is a real skill that I think, frankly, uh, many investors underestimate when evaluating uh, a founder or a team is just how good is the person at recruiting and motivating and getting this diverse skill set group to work together. And to your point, it's often not the same person that will have those skills. Like the independent thinker who's the visionary probably isn't going to be the best manager of people generally. I mean, it's funny because, you know, we both worked in, in the capital markets for a long time and, and, and at Deutsche Bank, where I was as a bond trader, the people that got promoted to lead business units were usually the top producers, but the top producing trader does not make a good manager you know, 95% of the time, in my view. And, and so I always thought that was kind of interesting because folks that were, were producing a lot of revenue, rightfully so, would be become promoted, but they were getting promoted into the wrong types of seats because they were a good producer and being a good trader has nothing to do with managing people or leading at all. Yep. <laughs> right. And then, so, yeah, that was always something that always stood out to me as a way that most banks are fundamentally mismanaged in my view. Um, but when I apply it to the startup world, I think, well, you know, oftentimes the person who's the visionary is not going to be the person who's the good team builder, the good you know, project manager, the good day to day. Um, you know, kind of operator. Um, sometimes they can be, but it's rare, you know, and they might also be, you know, brilliant when it comes to something on the technology side, like AI, which we'll talk to, but they might not have the soft skills. They might not be a good marketer. They might not be somebody who's able to brand the business and build its visibility. And so you, I think to your point, yeah, you have to have a core team that's got all these key skills around, you know, vision and strategy operations, marketing, finance, um, and, and, you know, leadership, but it's oftentimes going to be, you know, 
five people, seven people. It's not going to just be that like one person. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Makes a village to make success usually. So um, let's let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about AI because you're you're doing a lot in the space and it's incredibly relevant right now. So uh, where do we start? Let's start at the top. <laughs> when you hear the word AI or when investors hear AI, what are what are they thinking and then what's really going on beneath the surface? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating time to be talking about AI. Um, I can't get through a day without, in most rooms that I'm in, having uh, serious you know, conversations uh, about it. I, I think the quick answer to your question is when investors hear about AI, right now they're thinking, I want to buy some. How do I get that? Um, and that's fueling somewhat of a bubble-like uh, behavior in and around the, the space of companies that are um, involved with AI in various ways. Um, that said, it's a profound, fundamental, long-term uh, change dynamic in the world. And those who use AI effectively and commercially, I think are going to have a major competitive advantage over others. So it's very worthwhile to understand AI and to embrace it and to think about it. But I think it's easy right now. It's like the same story, different day. Um, easy to be seduced by the excitement, the hype, the potential of AI. And it's really important to try to drill it down to, okay, what's the use case? Who's the user? What's the ideal customer profile here? Uh, what's the process that's being 10x improved or materially uh, better because we're incorporating AI? It's also important to actually start using it. I mean, we, as you mentioned at Bullet Point Network, we have software that really does two things. It's research management and scenario modeling. So we're taking evidence and we're mapping it to specific assumptions and we're putting center points and ranges around those assumptions. Uh, and then we're building sets or regimes, combinations of assumptions so that we can build logical sets of cash flows and understand the odds of different financial outcomes for the business and different valuation outcomes, looking at both the cash flows and the capital market conditions. So that's just kind of what we're doing. On the research management port, most research management, most research is done by human beings over the, the course of our of our lifetimes. Um, they've recently become very focused on trying to make, quote, data-driven decisions. And so those human beings are trying to get their hands on data and analyze it. Um, that's a good thing. Um, but as you pointed out about innovation and, and founders and, and future disruptive technologies, it's actually also true generally about the future of most businesses. Uh, the historical data from the past is not going to give you a clear answer for what the future will hold. That's going to take judgment. It's going to take often the judgment of a human being. And so the way I am defining our use case at, at Bullet Point Network for, for how to use AI best is let's try to automate and improve the way in which we quickly source and filter relevant information. Let's try to create as many summaries of relevant information as we can and put them in an organized, methodical way in front of a human decision maker so she can make a good decision based on information that was captured by more than the minutes or hours or days that she herself could have put onto the project. And so that process of using AI in a very focused way, writing very specific prompts, 
using very specific vectors to sort of subdivide the, the information uh, and really focusing the sources or the knowledge pile that you're using for the AI prompts is really very critical. And so we're really focused on building workflow automation so that you can improve that human research process in a 10x fashion by having AI sourced information as well as human sourced information. And frankly, one of the big challenges is most of the people that are enormously excited with AI aren't doing anything with it other than maybe a casual thing, you know, on their phone with their friends that's that's cool and fun. And I've, I've enjoyed doing it too. Um, we've got to get below that superficial level of a cool toy doing cool tricks uh, to what are the real commercial use cases. And as we do more and more of that, say in all of our businesses, in all businesses around the world, you're going to see two or three common things happen. First, people are going to be amazed that it's possible to do something. Then they're going to be disappointed that it's not possible to do everything. Uh, then they're going to be focused on how can I do the most with it practically and pragmatically. And then finally, they're going to get to the point that we always start and finish with, how is this going to translate into cash flows? What are the cases? What are the use cases? Who's going to pay for them? What's the kind of units? How many, you know, P times Q, how many uh, of each uh, unit are you, are you going to get? And why is that going to be materially better in terms of either improving revenues or reducing costs that will lead to bottom line profitability expansion? And, you know, I it's funny, I'm, I'm almost like uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde on the topic. I couldn't be more excited about the long-term potential to use it properly, but I also couldn't be more concerned about the fact that most people are not using it and they therefore haven't gone through those phases of learning and they're just excited beyond belief. And as an investor, that's a great way to separate yourself from your money because you're not really being careful and thorough about how's this going to translate into cash flows and what am I really paying for here? Uh, you know, am I paying for um, you know two decades of success that looks exactly uh, you know like Microsoft or, or Tesla, uh, or am I paying for something that I have reasonable odds? of actually making money uh, off of reasonable commercial milestones that this investment uh, could produce in the next three to five years. So it's a really fascinating time. Uh, I think anything that's got an AI orientation is, you know, flying off the shelves or investors want to buy with both hands. Um, most people are not using it much. Um, I think the arms producers, the people who are selling the hardware, selling the chips, selling the um, picks and shovels to the gold miners of AI today are obviously the first wave of winners. And, and that's, you know, well understood. Um, the commercial practices of, of using generative AI we're talking about now, we're not talking about the older versions of AI that have been well used for just pattern recognition marketing for years, but generative AI, uh, I think the use cases are still really early days. And, you know, people are quite susceptible to the story right now. And I think they really are going to need to quantify the numbers to make sure that they make good decisions here. I think you nailed it on, on many fronts. And I, I agree with you on the Jekyll and Hyde situation in that I think longer term, yeah, it's hard to not be incredibly excited about AI. It's going to, it's going to fundamentally change the way we live. I mean, it's why I named the com my company ARI, right? I mean, this was five years ago. 
And uh, when I first started thinking of names, I thought, well, in the future, we're going to have to differentiate what's what's not AI because everything's going to be AI. Because you know, five years ago, you might have five or ten percent of interactions commercially being you know, touching machine learning and AI. You know, people didn't realize that. I, you know, this is let back. You know, I remember as early as like 2015 or 16, I was meeting with senior folks at Bloomberg. They had a meeting at Fenway Park, and they invited all the you know the top you know traders to come out and give their feedback. It was kind of cool. We got to you know, hit some baseballs and whatnot in Fenway. But um, what was interesting to me, the big takeaway was I asked them what percentage, or they had mentioned that up to 10% of the articles that were on Bloomberg were being generated by machines. And I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. And it turned out that it was 10% of the articles related to like equities and and stocks. And I said, well, what are you guys doing on, on the fixed income side? And they said, oh, we haven't done that yet. That's like coming up next. And I thought, wow, this is a huge opportunity. So I went back and actually built my own newsletter. Uh, I, I sent out a newsletter back in the day that you know thousands of traders would read, but I, I built it so that it was automated, right? And then so it would, it would take in all the data via API, and then the text would be generated based on the numbers, right? So if, if the you know, S&P 500 futures were up, it would automatically pull in the text saying, okay, futures are up today, and this is how they're trading over the last like five days and the last month. And I automated all this stuff. It took a while because there's a lot of trial and error. And I got to the point where I had like a, you know, a five-page or a 10-page newsletter um, that was predominantly generated uh, by machine, right? And I didn't have to do anything. Yeah. I mean, that's a great, it's a great story. And I'm, I'm sure you were ahead of your time and successful in that realm at that time. It, it actually is totally applicable today, Zach, to what I'm looking for in all of these AI, uh, you know, businesses and AI-enabled businesses. Because much like, uh, you know, other forms of technology, um, AI is in every business. It's going to be in every sector, every segment, and the, the winning uh, users of AI in their respective sectors are are, are likely to have a, a big competitive advantage over over those who uh, don't don't play well or, or succeed in, in in embracing it. But to your point about your newsletter, what I think is really critical, just like go back to basics. Who is the customer? What is the process that's being massively improved here? How much does that improvement of that process generate in terms of economic potential? What kind of cost does it save, which might be just time, a lot of human time? Like basically today, AI if it's done by bullet point network with, you know, tons of, of effort around building the prompts, focusing the knowledge piles, uh, using the the vectors and mapping the evidence, it can actually be an enormous productivity enhancer. It's almost as if you're having many extra people because uh, the work that used to take a week can now take an hour. And if you think about that, if you were pretty productive with your other hours and you saved yourself a lot of time uh, and synthesized it, and you didn't imagine things that were not realistic. If you didn't imagine that it was going to, quote, give you the answer, but it was going to just sort of help you productivity improve so that what used to take a week uh, now takes an hour, and now you have the rest of the week to think critically about what you just learned and to maybe go and explore that issue from a different perspective and then try to maybe quantify it in a in a, in a useful way. If you make good use of the extra time you've saved from that productivity, it can be very valuable. And in other businesses, like we're looking at 
I said defense tech uh, businesses. Uh, we're looking at consumer uh, tech uh, businesses right now. We're looking at some uh, businesses that make components in the in the electronic vehicle space, and uh, we're obviously looking at a lot of uh, medical uh, device and and biotech, uh, all of which are using AI in in very focused ways. And we we like to understand how is this AI being developed, implemented, tested, used, and then ultimately is there a buyer for the products that you're producing and, and coming out with. And so we like to translate everything into cash flows. And, and that's what I think is the ultimately going to be the, the trick. Man, there's so much to dig into in what you just said. One thing I wanted to say is is um, this idea of necessity being the mother of invention. In other words, when I look for companies to fund, I'm looking for companies that are solving a problem, right? And yeah, the reason I automated my newsletter was not because I was trying to do something slick. I was just sick of writing a newsletter every morning by hand, right? And I thought, how can I save myself two hours in the morning so I don't have to wake up at 4 a.m.? And you, you know, from being you know, at Goldman for, for almost two decades, you know how it is. It, you get in the morning as a salesperson and you're updating all your clients on what happened overnight, you know, what, what they missed, what happened in Asia, you know, how do you think the market's going to open, what your, you know, your best trades are for the day, you know, what axes you have, you know, to pitch them, et cetera. And I thought, man, Every single salesperson was getting on the desk writing these things. I thought that is incredibly inefficient because they're all writing something, wasting like an hour of their morning where they could be doing a higher level activity. And I thought, well, I'll build this newsletter and then I'll give it to my sales force too. And I'll tell you, Mike, I had the entire sales force sending it out to every single one of their clients. And that's how I went from being like a junior schmuck to being relevant like almost overnight because all of a sudden people are like, Zach's like saving us hours each day. And the clients were going, hey, if I want the best insight and I want it fast, I know where to go. And then yeah. so, you know, so it kind of goes back to this idea of what AI can do. What what I had to do manually that took me you know, months to build with that newsletter, now somebody could probably do in you know less than a week or maybe even faster if they know how to harness AI. And it'll be probably be better than what I was doing back then, you know. It was like mine was like the model T, and now you can have now you can have like a Mustang, right? That's it. In terms of how much things have evolved just in the last you know, six or seven years, yeah. I mean, the last thing I'll say, just and I know you want to transition to the final topic, but the um, the thing about the analogy that I used earlier is it's almost as if we can all have more people working for us instantly. So instead of doing it yourself, you now almost have like a handful of people that are working for you. They're all AIs. The thing you might want to ask yourself, which which we ask ourselves a lot in terms of building these props, focusing on the right knowledge piles or sources, uh, and then ultimately uh, utilizing the output of the AI uh, in a hybrid human process is how happy would you be if you hired five people and two of them lied to you most of the time or lied to you a third of the time? They gave you false information or confusing information or hallucinations, as it's called in the AI world. And that is something that people have to be very mindful of. So you're getting information that is credible, sounds very articulate, but sometimes is just wrong. And you need processes to protect yourself against, I've hired five people and 40% of the information they're giving me is lies. Uh, and so you got to be really careful about that. You wouldn't probably want to be with those five people for very long. I have a good friend who I've known since I was a kid and he's a great guy, but he, he's kind of like a pathological liar uh, about little things, you know? And and so it's kind of the same thing. It's like, hey, it's like AI in the sense that you just have to know what's true and what's not. And just, you know, and also um, 
verify everything, right? Before, especially before you you act on it. And I think that's where we're headed with AI. There's going to be, I think, there's going to be a real opportunity for companies that can figure out how to you know, validate and verify what various AI processes are are producing. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know if you've seen companies like that already. I'm sure there's some out there, but I haven't found a you know, a clear winner yet. Thank you for listening to The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison. We're glad you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights that you can use to grow your investment returns. Stay connected with us and access previous episodes of The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison by visiting our website at www.7and7show.com or connect with us on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at 7 and 7 Show. Learn more about ARI's Venture Debt Opportunities Fund and sign up for ARI's newsletter, Uncommon Sense, at www.arivc.com. For investor inquiries, please contact ARI's team at ir at arivc.com. Thank you for your continued support. Until next time, keep learning and growing.